Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through American Writers at 100 Pages at a Time while giving my commentary, analysis, thoughts, and some historical context. That music you heard uh, was an opera. Um, it's an opera written during the Harlem Renaissance called Voodoo by composer H.L. Freeman. It first was produced in 1928, which is the same year that Home to Harlem was published by Claude McKay, which is the book we're looking at right now. Um, I urge you to go back and listen to the first episode of this series on Home to Harlem to get um, to, to to get caught up to speed of where we're at. Um, as the second part of this novel opens, we find out our main character, Jake, is working in the railroad as a chef and learning more about the broader lives of the African diaspora through his interactions with the very well-educated worker Ray. Um, something I've been thinking about because I've been reading some other Harlem Renaissance novels is Home to Harlem is special because it deals with the working class. A lot of the other ones that came out in the 1920s um, deal with more educated people. Uh, in the next episode we'll be looking at Quicksand by Noel Larson. That's about a teacher. Uh, the novel that follows it is about uh, is Plumbun which is about artists. This and even Kane, which deals a lot with working class life, you know, also emphasizes intellectuals from time to time. This novel is really about the working class. And we see here that Ray is educated, but he is forced into this position of being a, a worker on the railroads. And I wonder how common that was as a, of experience for black people in the 1920s, that even education did not necessarily lead to uh, higher status in, in life. So the chapter, The Train of the Chef, we're exposed to a very interesting tension on the railroad. Uh, one of the head chefs is described as, quote, the most hated man in the service. But why? Um, well, first, he's very serious about his job. And I think some of the tension over the chef comes from him just being very, very um, stressed. Uh, quote, the chef was a great black bundle of conspicuously suppressed desires. That was doubtless why he was so ornery. He was one of the model chefs of the service. His kitchen was well ordered. The cheeking up of his provisions always showed a praiseworthy balance. He always had a food ready on time, feeding the heaviest rush of customers as lightly as the lightest. He fed the steward excellently. He fed the crew well. In a word, he did his duty as only a marinette can. And we just have some more construction, so I'm going to stop for a while and hope it ends. I was doing this on a Saturday, hoping I could avoid the nearby construction. Okay, I'm back. Those background sounds are really killing me. Uh, I'm able to get some of it on post, but I'm actually behind on my production schedule for these podcasts because of nearby construction. I, I think I need a sound booth or something, but that's outside of my budget for this podcast anyways. Um, well, anyways, he's serious about his job, but there's other issues with this chef that make him kind of an interesting character on the railroad. He has a biracial wife, and he's very sensitive about how black people are presented in the public. He has a degree of racial hatred that the other workers of the rail cars don't appreciate. Uh, he's very color sensitive, and this is a theme that comes up a lot in Harlem Renaissance novels, um, especially The Black or the Berry, which we'll get at in a, in a couple of weeks, I guess. He starts to have conflicts with the worker with a worker in the pantry, almost reaching the level of the pantry man wanting to commit violence against the chef. 
The sight of the chef grew more and more unbearable each day to the pantry man, McKay writes. He thought of knifing or plunging him with a gun some night. He had nursed his resentment to the point of madness and was capable of any act. But getting the chef in the dark would not have been revenge enough. The pantryman wanted the paragon to live so he might invent a way of bringing him down humiliatingly from his perch. There's another level of this chef's character as we learn that he's very, very sensitive to color. Quote, a yellow girl passed by and waved a smile at the chef. He grinned, his teeth camping his cigar. The chef hated yellow men with quote unquote cracker hatred, but he loved yellow women with a cracker love. His other love was gin, but he never carried a liquor flask on the diner because it was against regulations. He never drank with any of the crew. He drank alone and he did other things alone. In Philadelphia or Washington, he never went to a buffet flat with any of the men. So it's kind of interesting. It gets another level of the tension between the chef and the rest of the crew. He doesn't really want to associate with them. He thinks he's better than them, in part because he has a, a biracial wife. So um, anyways, eventually the chef gets into trouble with, and the steward, with the steward, and the steward's able to basically embarrass him publicly, and he gets demoted. Um, and there's a large part due to the plotting and manipulation of this pantry man. Thus, we see some of the complexities of the color line and the racial tensions within the community of, of men working on the rails. It's a very fascinating part of the book, and it adds much to, to the story. Um, it's, it's an episodic story. There, there's not much of a plot in Home to Harlem. Yes, he's looking for a place in life. Yes, Jake is looking for his, quote-unquote, uh, the brown girl he met early on in the novel. And that gives some structure to the story. But a lot of it's just the episodes of working-class life in the post-World War I uh, New York and, and the East Coast. But the cast of characters we're introduced to in the novel is as rich as the one we're exposed to in the cabarets in the earlier part of the story. So in Philadelphia, Jake takes Ray's, Ray out for a night on the town. Ray is offended at the establishment because of, of the quite open prostitution here. And he gets a little puffed up about the prostitution. Quote, Ray felt a violent dislike for the atmosphere. At first, he had liked the general friendliness and warmth of the naturalness of it. Also different from what he expected. But something about the presence of the little boy there and his being, being the woman's son disgusted him. He could not analyze his aversion. It was just an instinctive, intolerant feeling that the boy did not belong to that environment and should not be there. So with this, we see that Ray is, maybe it's his education, maybe it's his upbringing, uh, but perhaps it's his education that's making him feel out of place in this environment. And it's a place that Jake, of course, feels very comfortable at. And so in this sense, Jake fails in his effort to maybe corrupt Ray by bringing him to his way's life. But I don't want to see this corruption so much. It's just that uh, they're, they're kind of too, uh, different enough that, that there's a foundation for their friendship. But they're also this divergence in their day-to-day -day experiences and what they want to get out of life. So there is some hope in education and refinement, perhaps. It's not something that Jake is going to really uh, enter into. But he is attracted by Ray for what he knows and what he brings and the broader perspective on, on black life in America that he brings to him. And you can see my comments on this in the previous episode. In the next part of the novel, covering a few chapters, Jake is hospitalized for over drinking. And we're introduced to Ray's girlfriend, Agatha, and we're reminded again of the mobility of, of the rail workers. 
Agatha had heard much of Ray's best friend, but he had never, she had never met him. Men working on the trains had something of a spirit of men working on a ship. They are perforce bound together in comradeship of a sort, of that close atmosphere. In the stopover cities, they go about in pairs or groups. But the camaraderie breaks up on the platform in New York as soon as the dining car returns there. Every man goes his own way, unknown to his comrades. Wife or sweetheart or some other magnet of the great city draws each off separately. And that's, that's a really nice image there of this network of working class life connecting the, the rail towns or the ports. Yet when they come home, they still have their network and their communities that they come back to. I really rather like that part of this story. Now, despite warnings, Jay continues to drink and he eventually falls ill. It's at this point that we're introduced to a, a, a character who is our, our, I guess, our archetypal pimp named the Yaller Prince. Unless that's how he's known. He was a prince of all the day joints and night holes of the belt. All the shark players of Dixie Red's pool halls were proud of losing a game to him. And at the Congo, the waiters danced around to catch his orders. For Yaller Prince, so they affectionately called him, was living easy and sweet. Three girls, they said, were engaged in the business of keeping him princely. One chocolate to the bone, one teasing brown, and one yellow. He was always well dressed in a fine brown or bottle green suit, excessively creased and spat. Also, he was happy-going and very generous, but there was something slimy about him. So yeah, he's essentially a pimp. It's not hidden here. Ray uses Yeller Prince to lecture a friend Grant on the uses of, of education. Interestingly, he defends the, the pimp in a, in a way. What does he say about him? Um, no, modern education is planned to make you a sharp, snouty, hooting hog. A Negro getting it is an anachronism. We ought to get something new, we Negroes. But we get our education like, like our houses. When the whites move out, we move in and take possession of the old dead stuff. Dead stuff that has, that this age has no use for. So Ray has a little bit of, uh, I guess, criticism of education. Um, he goes on, all men have the disease of pimps in their heart. We can't, be, we, can, we can't be civilized or not. I have seen your high and mighty civilized people do things and some pimps would be ashamed of. It's... It's, it's fascinating coming from one of the more educated people who's he's already cynical about it. And I think that might be because Ray's own education doesn't really raise him in status in life. He's still a working class person. He knows a lot, but he he's also got one foot, I guess, in working class life. And that led, leads him to have cast some doubt on, I guess, the, me the, the, the message of refinement or how education is a cure-all for all the problems of, of African-American life. I think that's an important point. He uses this part to venture into a story about a sympathetic pimp named Jerko. And so there's a long chapter called He Also Loved, where, where it's essentially Ray's story. It's, it's a big chunk of the book. It's something like 10 pages of a very short, relatively short novel. So about 5% of the total bulk of the novel is this story about this pimp named Jerko. Jerko, J-E-R-C-O. Uh, he finds out that one of his ladies has died and he later kills himself. And so he, he enters in as, as the story as kind of a sympathetic figure. With this, we get close to the end of the novel. Grant and Ray get a job on a freighter going to the South Pacific and then on to Europe. So our author's final thoughts on Ray tell us much about the theme of the novel, which is the color line in the inability of whites to, 
to perceive the undersurface of black life. There's just this barrier. It's 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 it, it's Du Bois's veil. It's the double consciousness. It's it's the color line, whatever term you want to use for it. No wonder the whites, after five centuries of contact, could not understand his race. How could they when the instinct of comprehension had been cultivated out of them? No wonder they hated them when out of their melancholy environment the blacks could create mad, contagious music and high laughter. Going away from Harlem. Harlem! How terribly Ray could hate it sometimes. Its brutality, gang rowdiness, promiscuous thickness, its hot desires. But oh, the rich blood-red color of it, the warm accent of its composite voice, the fruitfulness of its laughter, the trilling rhythm of its blues, and the improvised surprises of its jazz. He had known happiness, too, in Harlem, joy that glowed gloriously upon him like the high noon sunlight of his tropic island home. How long would he have to endure the life of a cabin boy or a mess hall in a freighter? Jake had tried to dissuade him. A seaman's life is no good, chappy, and it's easier to jump off the train in the field than off in a ship going across the pond. So it's a rather sad ending to, to Ray. We don't know his future, um, but it seems that's the highest this very fascinating character can reach in the world he lives in. They enjoy a quote-unquote farewell feed, just a, I guess a, a goodbye dinner and party. Our goodbyes to Ray are a bit melancholy. We learn that he's only shipping in as a mess boy, despite his education, despite his erudition, despite his relatively moral outlook on life, his assertiveness and his near limitless ability, he's signing on as a mess boy. Now, all that McKay needs to do at this point is I wrap up Jake's story. Um, Jake goes on much as he had before that, even saying that there's not much change from place to place. Eventually, Jake goes to a, a cabaret called Sheba's Palace. He runs into none other than his, quote, little brown girl. This is the girl in the very opening pages of the novel that he sleeps with but lost touch with, and he's been kind of looking for it with one eye throughout the whole novel. They recognize each other, and their meeting is filled with authentic affection and longing. Jake finds out that her name is Felice, and as they start to build a relationship, we are touched to find a relationship based on mutual affection, solidarity, and interest. It's not the commercialized or unequal relationships, relationships that plague so much of the novel. This is a really important point that I think McKay is trying to make. So many of the relationships we come across are essentially commercialized uh, exchanges um, about having a job or about having a bit of security. And we're going to see that again in Quicksand and particularly in Plum Bun, especially in Plum Bun, this, the, the, the danger of the, of the relationship for security. The climax of the novel takes place, as we might expect, in a cabaret. Zeddy, another character from the early part of the novel, comes back into the story and we find out that he has had a relationship with Felice. Zeddy gets very jealous, seeing her with Jake, tries to take her away from him. Zeddy comes armed with a razor in hopes of forcing uh, Felice to come with him. Jake pulls out a gun and stops what is essentially an effort at, at, a, at a kind of rape, or at least a forced uh, relationship between Zeddy and, and, and Felice. Felice has made her choice, but Zeddy does not want to accept it. Zeke Zeddy looked Jake steadily in the face and said, You're going to kill me if you want to. You're going to come gunning at me, but you didn't go gunning after the Germans. No, sir. You were scared and running away from the army. So here, Zeddy brings up another plot point from early in the novel, which is that Jake was a deserter. Um, now, 
Zeddy's not being entirely honest here. The reason Jake fled the army or deserted is because he wasn't given a job fighting the Germans. He was given a job basically as a as a longshoreman in Brest, in the western part of France. He wanted to serve to fight the Germans. So, yes, he is a deserter, but it's not really the proper criticism for him here. But he is telling the crowd publicly that Jake is deserted, and it's you know these people can still be arrested for desertion. So it's a bit of a a threat to. Um, Jake's future but at this point Jake's chooses peace and it's a really nice message here quote they have always sickened sad and unmanned him the wild shrieking mad woman that is sex seemed jeering at him why should love create terror love should be joy lifting man out of the humdrum ways of life he has always managed to delight in love and yet steer clear of the hate and violence that govern it in this world his love nature was generous and warm without any vestiges of the diabolical or sadistic. Yet here he was caught in the thing that had, he had despised so thoroughly. Breast, London, and his America. Their vivid brutality tortured his imagination. Oh, he was infinitely disgusted with himself to think that he had just been moved by the same savage emotions as those vile, vicious, villainous white men who, like hyenas and rattlers, had fought, murdered, and clawed the entrails out of black men over the common commercial flesh of women. And coming to this realization, Jake chooses peace. He chooses to reconcile with Zeddy and to commit to a relationship with Felice. Jake explains to Felice why he deserted. And Felice seems to understand, um, saying even that I would have deserted too if I was in your situation. So that resolves that problem. The novel ends with Felice and Jake deciding to move to Chicago to start a new life together. And I think this qualifies as a relatively happy ending. Home to Harlem is a very, very interesting novel. It works on different levels. Thematically, we go from frustration, violence of war, and wanderlust to at least the hope of stability, happiness, and renewed friendship. But there are other levels that this novel works on. It explores the limits of education for black people, uh, that even the, the most well-educated might be trapped in working class jobs. We learn about the impact of racism on African-American communities. We study the power of the state to repress um, black culture in Harlem through the raids and through the infiltration of the cabarets in the era of prohibition. We learn of the power and the flexibility that mobility offers, whether it's working on ships or working on the rails and how that could be a source of power, at least of freedom for for black people. We learn just the importance of pleasure. I, I think there's so there's not enough focus on pleasure. It's, it's one of the things I really liked about Taipei and Omu, the novels by Melville, if you go back to my earlier episodes, is that they were novels that took seriously pleasure as an important theme. And I, get, I think scholars don't think enough about pleasure and not enough novels really you know, if a novel is about pleasure, it's seen as kind of vulgar or genre fiction, right? Like reading for pleasure is something lesser than reading for some kind of insight or academic insight. Uh, I mostly like to read genre fiction, actually. So I'm really getting excited to some of the later novels in this series, which are, are essentially genre fiction um, novels from the Harlem Renaissance. I enjoyed reading Home to Harlem. I recommend, recommend it, although I found it sometimes hard to work through, especially the dialogue. It's, it's often written as spoken, and sometimes it took a few tries. I'm not good at speaking, reading the dialect. I'm not really good at reading it either. 
I'm sure an audiobook version would be really wonderful, but I, I didn't have access to one. So now's the part of the podcast where I finish up each book. Um, now, sometimes these books take a couple episodes like this one, and, and I think the Octopus would be five episodes. But at the end of each one, I have a short section where I just list some of what I think are the major themes of the novel. And the goal here in doing this is, you know, kind of to keep these in mind and to cross-reference them and to see which themes come up again and again uh, in, in works. Maybe creating kind of an index or a taxonomy or a lexicon of, of American writing. Uh, the, one of the dominant themes, and we could probably just put this down for all the Harlem Renaissance novels, is the color line. Right. Um, the color line, both the line between blacks and whites, you know, to what degree were whites part of Harlem culture, to what degree were whites excluded, um, but also to what degree did the color line limit black potential, like especially I think in the character of Ray, we see a kind of a ceiling put on his his potentiality because of racism. But then there's also the color line within black life, you know, whether it's a preference for lighter skinned women among some of our characters, whether it was, uh, you know, advantages that lighter skin gave certain people. So there's color line within the African-American community as well. This, uh, another theme in this novel is the black working class. Certainly most of our characters are members of the black working class. And here I'm going to define working class essentially as Robin Kelly in his book, race rebels defines it, uh, meaning anyone who requires in, in income derived from some form. So our pimps might be part of this working class culture, certainly the rail workers, the sailors, the cabaret workers, the prostitutes, the charity girls, all of these are part of the black working class and they're interacting in really uh, interesting ways. Um, and I, I think that's really where the power of this novel comes from. If you're gonna read this novel for one reason, it's gonna be for the depiction of this black working class in Harlem uh, or in the broader East Coast in, in the other urban environments connected by railroads. Another theme, and this I'm rethinking of going back to even Melville in Taipei, which is a book about desertion. Desertion is a theme in this book, uh, and it's in various forms. The opening action of the book is desertion by a, by a soldier. But then you have desertion from work. You have desertion from relationships. You have uh, the threat of mobility and what the threat that places on social stability for individuals. Now, the end of the novel, we have hope that Jake might find some stability in his relationship with Felice, but that's not guaranteed. We know Jake by this point, and we, we, it's, we're right to have, perhaps have some doubt that he's going to be fully uh, accepting of a, of, of a stable life. Another theme would be commercialization of, of sexuality. Uh, you have open prostitution as a theme in the novel, obviously. It takes place in the cabarets. Some of our characters are, are pimps. But I would also say with commercialization of sex, you have the broader theme of relationships being entered into or departed from over really pecuniary money interests. You know, is this relationship going to give me some stability? Is this man providing for me? Yeah, and there's several places in the book where women criticize men for maybe not having a good job or, or whatever, and um, that all come, enters into it. So it's, it's mixed up with, with masculinity. It's mixed up with uh, gender in this way. Another theme, mobility. 
mobility is a big one here, maybe the biggest theme. Um, and again, mobility at several levels, mobility, physical mobility throughout different cities, mobility with through relationships. The city itself is kind of this liquid space in which people are coming and going. And I think Jake's search for Felice is a reflection of just this, the, you know, the difficulty of meeting people in cities and, and this kind of anonymity there in it. And that's kind of an interesting fa fact. Maybe anonymity is another kind of theme we should throw in here. I mean, that was the problem. He never got her name initially. They, they went to bed together without really getting to know each other. That's a common thing in urban environments, of course, that kind of liquidity of the city. But then it makes it more difficult for people to really settle down and, and to develop relationships. Okay, another theme, um, education and its limits. Education is going to be a big theme in Harlem Renaissance novels. It's something black intellectuals like W.E.B. Du Bois thought were crucial. Du Bois, of course, talked about his talented 10th, who should be the leaders of African-American life, and they're the ones who should be the forefront of the focus of culture. He liked novels about this talented 10th that showed the best of, I guess, the quote-unquote best of, of, of black life, the most educated. But McKay's response to this is education doesn't necessarily get us there. It doesn't matter how enlightened and informed you are, you might still have a job just on the railroad. So as long as you have... Um, segregation, as long as you have, even in the North, uh, just a general environment of racism, it's not going to, education is not going to be your cure-all. There needs to be more institutional changes in society. So education has limits. And I'm think, I'm trying to think if, if quicksand and plum bun get into this the same way. I, certainly plum bun does. Quicksand, I think, also looks at the limits of education, but maybe from a less systemic way, but maybe from a more personal way. Um, something I mentioned before, is a, I'm putting down as another theme here, is the historical importance of, of pleasure. Uh, pleasure and the search for pleasure is history making. And nowhere is that seen more than in the 1920s and the era of prohibition, right? The challenge for prohibition came from just regular people seeking out day-to-day -day pleasures in life. And that took place, that pleasure took place in cabarets and saloons and bars. And therefore it collectively challenged the laws of the land. The historical importance of pleasure, that's, that's how I want to state it here. Working class values and working cl class spaces is another theme I wrote down. Uh, what are some of the working class values we get here? Um, well, one is we see reflected in like the, the morality not to scab, right? And this is something even Jake accepts. Jake, even though he wasn't going to be part of the union, he didn't want to join the union of longshoremen, he understood the ethic, you don't scab, right? The conflict with the chef reflects other working class values, that there has to be some kind of solidarity. And if you let yourself be too aloof from your coworkers, you're going to be not accepted. And that's a kind of an undermining this working class solidarity. McKay is on the left. He was very attracted to communism. And so I think that informs some of his writing here about the values that working class people should have. And then we have working class spaces, whether it's the ship, the railroad, or the cabarets themselves, which were places where working class people visited. These are spaces with their own ethos, their own ethics, and, and their own kind of rules. Wow, I have a lot of themes in this one. Okay, uh, another one, gender and power. Yeah, so 
a big theme here is the power that women had over over men. Many of these relationships were not equal. They and on how to what degree are any relationship equal? But kind of the normally when we think of like a feminist text, it will talk about the power that men have over women. McKay's writing about a lot of very powerful women, and I think that's that's a rather interesting part of this tale. These women are many of them are really controlling the relationship. And when we see Zeddy, the chapter called Zeddy's Rise and Fall, that's really about how he is very weak in his relationship and this alienates him. And eventually he is kicked out of a relationship um, because of his weaknesses, whether it was weaknesses towards other women, the difficulty of him getting and keeping a job. Um, when we get a relationship at the end, that between Felice and Jake, that seems to be based on solidarity, cooperation, and equality, it's, it's kind of refreshing because we've been burdened by so many relationships that are very commercialized, very capitalist. Uh, maybe that's the term we want, the capitalist relationship, one get entered into for benefit. So that's going to do it for Home to Harlem, a really fascinating tale, and I urge you to, to read it. Our next novel will be Nella Larson's Quicksand, and I'll have just one episode on that, but I guess that'll be a rather lengthy episode. So uh, until next time, that'll be it. If you Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, share it with your friends. Let other people who are interested in American writers know about it. Uh, it's always hard to get podcasts going. And, um, you know, it's a flooded market out there, I realize. But, you know, ultimately I'm doing this for myself. But the more I can get my ideas out there and the more I can develop a communication with you, uh, the happier I'll be about this. So that'll be it. Uh, so I'll see you in 100 pages. Thanks again for listening.